Well, good morning. Again, welcome to the Gathering Church. Uh, we're starting a, we're finishing up the book of Ephesians here, and we are looking at spiritual warfare for the next three Sundays. And so I have some books to give away. If you'll read them in the next month, you can have one. John raised his hand. You don't even know what it is, John. It's, it's all of Jonathan, the works of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, no, this one is a short book. I only have two of them. They have more coming that didn't, just didn't arrive yet. But it's called Did the Devil Make Me Do It? And Other Questions About Satan, Demons, and Evil Spirits by Mike McKinley. Great short, easy read. One for Tim and one for Dave Templin. If, uh, Zach, will you come on the out, please? Tim Buckingham, David Templin. And this one is by Thomas Brooks. A little bit bigger. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, Brooke gets one. Uh, Elizabeth Hall. You can't do that? I can. Nathan Edmonds, here. Why don't you just, here you go. Take care of it. But Brooke does get one. <laughs> so here we come to the end of uh, the book of Ephesians. We started this series back in October and uh, took a couple short breaks for Advent and Easter, but we get to Paul's concluding remarks. And I think there can be the, uh, the temptation for us to think that maybe this last section here on spiritual warfare is maybe just an addendum to what Paul has been telling us. Uh, why does he place this, these 10 verses on spiritual warfare where he does? Or maybe you're like me, and you're just kind of skeptical about spiritual warfare stuff. I mean, you believe it exists because it's in the Bible, but it's just kind of in the back seat, normally, of your thinking. One author put this conclusion like this. He says, as this letter draws to a conclusion, what Paul is actually doing is he's setting forth a summary and he's reinforcing everything that he said so far in this letter and he's challenging his readers to action. And as I read the text here in a moment, I want you to listen for these particular words. Words like truth, righteousness, peace, gospel, salvation, word of God. Listen for those words. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, Having done all to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning as your people. And so many of us are desperate to hear a word from you. Lord, you know I don't long to preach about the devil. It's not the delight of my heart to talk about the enemy of our souls. And yet your word is so clear that we must be able to stand firm against his schemes. Would you help us this morning, Lord? Would you open our eyes to behold marvelous and beautiful things in your word? Would we be changed by the truths of the Bible? Lord, I pray a prayer for myself that you would help me. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Those words, truth, righteousness, peace, gospel, salvation, word of God, are words and ideas that are throughout the entire book of Ephesians. Paul is not introducing something new to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following. He's recapitulating and he's just reinforcing what he said the entire time. If you remember what the book of Ephesians is all about, you remember that these words are central to Paul's message to us. Let me just read a few of them. Ephesians 1.13 says that in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Good news. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.5, he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Ephesians 3 says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his body and is himself his savior. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what this book is all about. This book is all about how God in Jesus Christ has come to us with a great grace, bringing peace to us, dividing and, 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 and tearing down rather hostility. He's come to us. And then he concludes the letter by saying this. These are his final words to us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil hates the book of Ephesians. 
The devil hates the message of the book of Ephesians. He hates truth and righteousness and peace. He hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hates the word of God. And he prowls around and he seeks to destroy you. He seeks to destroy me. And he seeks to destroy this church. So Paul tells us, after this glorious, wonderful, beautiful letter, stand firm against his schemes. You know, the problem is that we live in a modern era. And in a modern era, we have what philosophers call a closed system. And a closed system means that we only believe that which can be measured, we can taste, we can touch, we can smell, and so on. We live in a system that's called naturalism. That's what the world around us believes. The notion of supernatural or the notion of the spiritual forces are just foreign and absent to the modern mind. And I think that mentality to some degree has crept into the church It's crept a lot into the church, actually. I confess it's crept into my own thinking. As I said at the beginning, I believe it's there because it's in the word of God, but it's it's really only like this little sliver over here in my box where a little light is let in. Oh yeah, there's spiritual forces. There's, we live in this present darkness and so on. But I so quickly go back to thinking about what I can taste, touch, measure, and so on. But there is an enemy. The word Satan, the devil is described in many different terms in the Bible. The word Satan is just the Hebrew for adversary. It indicates his basic nature that he's the enemy of God, of all God does, and he's an enemy of all that God loves. In the New Testament, he's called the devil, which means that he's a false accuser, or he's a slanderer. In Matthew 12, the Jews refer to Satan as Beelzebul, which means Lord of the fly, which is one of the false gods of the Philistines. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians. He's called the wicked one in the Gospel of Matthew. He's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. In John's Gospel, he's called the ruler of this world, In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the God of this age. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. That description means his capacity and his inclination to deceive us. He masquerades. In this book here that I handed out, listen to things that Describe what he does. In Matthew 4, he speaks. In John 8, he lies. He contends and fights with God's angels. In Jude 9, he has desires. In John 8, he prowls around, Peter tells us. He's designed plans to outwit believers. 2 Corinthians 2.11. He blinds unbelievers. He deceives. He gets angry. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, in his introduction, he says this about the way that we ought to think of spiritual things. 
He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. He says, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Either ignore it completely or have an unhealthy over-interest in the spiritual things. Thomas Brooks, who wrote that other book I gave out to you, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, he says this. He says there's four things. There's four things that as Christians we ought to give attention to and study and think about. He says Christ, the scriptures, your own heart, and Satan's devices. Christ, the scriptures, your own heart, and Satan's devices. Those are what we ought to spend our time thinking and studying because he's a schemer. The devil's schemes, even the way Paul talks about him in Ephesians 6, 10, and 11, is that he's a schemer. He's a snake. He's a dragon. He prowls around seeking to deceive us, confuse us, wanting to destroy us. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This morning, I'm going to be primarily talking about what it means to stand. What it means to stand and how to stand. Next week, Matt Zrust is going to preach more explicitly on the schemes of the devil. I'm going to give us some here as an opening to think about. But Matt's going to expound on that more next week. And then July 3rd, I'm going to preach one sermon on the armor of God. Because the armor of God is the means whereby, more fully, the means whereby we stand against the devil and his schemes. So just some thoughts. Some thoughts on the schemes of the devil. First, One of the schemes of the devil is what I've already suggested. That we have a naturalist worldview. A naturalist worldview. That there is no inherent good or evil. There was an article that was in the Wall Street Journal just a couple weeks ago. And it's by this philosopher of religion. And this philosopher of religion, who's an atheist. (laughs) That's weird. um, Was acknowledging that, you know what? There really is no basis for good and evil. There really is no basis for good and evil. He said, but it's, it's really valuable for a society to believe that there's good and evil. So as us intellectual elites, let's just keep this secret to ourselves. But he published his findings in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> you know, this last Sunday, there was a horrific tragedy in Orlando, Florida where a gunman came in and he gunned down 49 people, killed them. And as Christians, we ought to grieve as Jesus grieves. Weep with those who weep. But in the days following, the President of the United States did an art, did a, made a stand. And when he made the stand, there was an article that was referenced just a month ago in the Atlantic Monthly. And in this article... In the Atlantic Monthly, the president goes on record to say that he doesn't ultimately believe that theological agendas actually drive people. He was answering the question why he never uses the phrase radical Islam. 
And he said, because at the end of the day, I don't actually believe it's true. I don't actually believe that people are influenced and to that degree by a certain kind of theology. The president went on record to say he embraces a naturalist view. Whereas God's word tells us in Revelation 3.9 that houses of worship that don't honor and worship the Lord Jesus Christ are synagogues of Satan. It's a scheme of the devil to confuse us, to make us think that all we see is what exists. It's the reality of living in an age of unbelief, living in an age when we don't acknowledge a spiritual nature. But it, it comes into our lives in other ways. There was recently, just this last week, an article in the Wall Street Journal again, and it was in the... Um, uh, personal journal section. And it was how to deal with low self-esteem. And this is, this is the Wall Street Journal, okay? This is, this is not some flimsy newspaper. And it's how to deal with low self-esteem. And the number one recommended tactic to deal with low self-esteem, I kid you not, was create an imaginary friend. Create an imaginary friend. Envision, and they said, and make this person be just like yourself so that you can dote on yourself to this other person and thus raise your self-esteem. Now, I don't know if that would work or not because I, I, I can't imagine having a... That's really weird. I almost said I couldn't imagine having... Anyway. But the point is, is that we live in a society and a culture that totally despiritualizes the normalness of life. We live in a culture that takes human experience and human suffering and it dehumanizes it, in fact. It dehumanizes our experiences as insecurity or sadness, or anxiety, or depression, or bereavement, and we say that it shouldn't be part of the human experience. It's a scheme of the devil, and so we live in a culture that medicates that, that medicates anxiety, or bereavement, when really it's just part of being in the Imago Dei. We're made in the image of God, which means we're made to feel things, to feel things as God feels them. But we live in such a world that desires, there's a scheme of sorts to make us not feel anything anymore. We live in a culture, third, that is becoming increasingly effeminate. It's becoming increasingly effeminate, which means it's becoming increasingly soft, which means it's becoming increasingly to the point where offense is not allowed which means that we're cut off at the heels, cut off at the legs to speak the truth and love to anyone. We live in a culture where a strong word or a hard word is becoming wrong, out of place, immoral. Where the Bible is full of it. The Bible is full of places where we're commanded and told to speak the truth and love, to confront our brothers and sisters, to have strong words at times. That's why kids were given a mom and a dad the dad at times needs to step in with a strong word and mom at times needs to step in with the balancing 
word to say, eh, I don't think so. Chill out a little bit, dear. And it's good. But we live in a culture that increasingly is becoming effeminate. And it's a scheme. It's a scheme to make us think that we can't speak hard, true words to one another. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, first, it's helpful to note that the Ephesians were painfully aware of spirituality. They were involved in magic. They were aware of powers and principalities. Think of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we see the kinds of things that were taking place in Ephesus. That's where you have the story of the seven sons of Sceva. I'll read you a little bit of it. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Yeah, try that on a business card. I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. All the residents of Ephesus knew this. Both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So the Ephesians knew that when God saved them, they were very well aware that when God saved them, that he had transferred them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. They were a people who were haunted by past spiritual sins. And Paul is writing to these people so they can know that there is victory in Jesus Christ. There is power in Jesus Christ. That they can stand against all the forces of darkness in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is sufficient to stand in this present darkness. And there's a word for us this morning, my brothers and sisters. This word, therefore, to the Ephesians is a therefore to us as well. Because we believe that God speaks through his word and that his spirit directs us to the passages of scripture that we preach. So when we preach the word of God, we're preaching the very word of God. So therefore is for us this morning too. And God is speaking to us this morning, telling us, be strong in the Lord. And this is in the passive. Passive means that the subject receives the action of the verb. The subject, the Ephesians, or the subject, us, we receive the action of the verb. verb. Something is done to us. In other words, there is a need for the Ephesians and there is a need for us to be strengthened. We have a lack of strength to stand and something needs to come from outside of ourselves to strengthen us. And this need that we have is an ongoing state. It's in the present tense. It's an ongoing state. In other words, this is not some one-time thing that needs to be strengthened and we move on. Rather, Paul is telling us that we are weak and we have a perpetual need to be strengthened from something outside of ourselves. 
We are in a war, my brothers and sisters, and there is an enemy of your soul prowling around like a lion. We need to be strengthened. This word, endunamis, it means to be strengthened. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. I'll give you two examples. One is in Philippians 4.13, very famous verse, where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul's talking about there, he's not talking about the, you know, the power to win baseball games, like many of my friends had tattooed on their arms and so on. He's talking about, in the context, the ability to endure a situation to endure sufferings, to endure loss because of a strength that comes from Jesus Christ himself. Another place Paul uses it is in a very intimate context. As he's closing his letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, he says this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. When everyone else deserted him, when everyone else was gone in his moment of greatest need, it was the Lord who strengthened him. Reminds me of our Lord Jesus Christ in the garden, pleading with his disciples to just stay awake a little bit and pray. But he was deserted. And it was his father there that strengthened him. What kind of strength is this that we're talking about? It's a spiritual strength that is courage. It's resolution. It's a strength that's marked by endurance. It's a strength that looks like contentment. A strength that's not persuaded by circumstances. Peace, joy, love, contentment that's not robbed from you by a circumstance. Oh, how the devil wants to rob you of joy and contentment in God. He's a liar and a deceiver. He's an enemy that wants you to think, is God actually good? That's what he says to Eve in the garden, right? Is God actually good? And when the circumstances of life, when the waves of life, when the storms of life come your way, and come into your life, when the unexpected happens, when the storm blows, it's the liar, it's the deceiver, it's the schemer who comes in and says, is God really good? If so, why is he holding back on you then? But there is a strength a strength that is God's grace active in your heart. This kind of strength that Paul is talking about is a strength that 
grows, a kind of strength that empowers us to be resolute in service towards one another. At bare bottom, at bottom line, it's a strength that is a vigorous faith to believe that the promises of God are true. It's a vigorous faith to believe that the promises of God are true. So this strength, this strength is in the Lord. In the Lord means to take on his strength in power. Jesus is the one with whom we are now united. That's the whole story, the whole point of the book of Ephesians, right? That we are now united in him. That he took down the wall of hostility where there was two men, two, and in place of the two, he made one new man in himself. The new man in himself is the church. And the church is literally his body. So we literally are in him. I mean literally, literally. Actually, ontologically, we are in him. We are part of him. It's a great mystery that we don't understand. I don't pretend to understand what it means, but it means that we're actually in him. That's how he can say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me when he's on the road to Damascus? Acts chapter 9. Because he himself was being persecuted. That's how closely he identifies and relates to his people. We are his body. And the strength that we rely on, the strength that we appropriate into our lives is his strength. Be strong in the Lord. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being held together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new man. And that man is Jesus Christ. So in the sphere in which we live now, in Jesus Christ, in his body, is the very place that we derive our strength. Now, so we've done be strengthened in the Lord. Now it's crucial for us to understand this last phrase. The kind of strength that we have in the Lord to stand. It is in the strength of his might. In the strength of his might. That is an interesting phrase. That's like saying uh, in the power of his power or in the might of his might. Paul has a tendency to do that. Listen to how one commentator describes it. Paul has a way of using closely related synonyms to create a dynamic phrase. A dynamic phrase. The strength of his might. The strongness of his strongness. The mightiness of his mightiness. The power of his power. But this isn't the first time that Paul has used this phrase in the book of Ephesians. And that's what's so crucial for us to know. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. 
You need to see this. You need to see this to understand the strength of his might that is for you and towards you. I think I'm starting in verse 18. He says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's that phrase, according to to the working of his great might. When he worked in Christ, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Gathering church, what the apostle is telling us this morning is that he's exhorting us to be strengthened in nothing less than the resurrection, exaltation power of Jesus Christ. The power of God is most clearly seen in the work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we saw a power like we had never seen before. Isn't it striking to you that when he talks about the great might of God, the great power of God, I would think he would say something like when he created the cosmos with just his word, when he spoke everything as we know it into existence. But that's not what he says. That is not creation itself, yes, does show God's great power and his might, as Romans chapter 1 tells us. But it is not the pinnacle of his power. The pinnacle of God's power is not that he created the cosmos. The pinnacle of God's power is that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and was exalted into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's his power. And that kind of power is towards those who believe. That power, the great power that raised Jesus from the dead, that vindicated his death on the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and was buried in the grave, you ever wondered why he needed to be resurrected three days later? Jesus needed to be resurrected three days later to show that he trampled death, that he destroyed death. The great arbiter of all human beings is that we are all going to die. We cannot escape death, but one man did. One man escaped death, the Lord Jesus Christ. Death had no power over him. Death had no victory over him because he was without sin and he was God in the flesh. And God's power was on display to the most supreme degree. When Jesus Christ was resurrected and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, the tomb stands empty. The final power death was broken by Jesus Christ and that power that raised him from the dead became the power that enthroned him and becomes the power that he now rules and reigns with. He is above every power, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named. 
He's talking to the Ephesians. He's talking to the Ephesians who were just engrossed, wrapped up in this spiritual darkness. They were just wrapped up in it. And he says that Jesus Christ is far above all that. He's far above every power. He's far above every dominion. He's far above all rule. He's far above all authority. He's above every single name that is named. There's no name, there's no magic incantation that has power that's compared to the name of Jesus Christ. This is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. At the end of the day, isn't the answer just so simple? It's so complex and hard to do. But yet it's so simple. His power is towards us who believe. All we need to do is lay hold of it by faith. That's all that he requires of us. To feel our weakness, to know we're weak, and to find our life in him. Find our strength in him. Towards us who believe. Do you believe you believe this morning? Does it engender faith in your heart this morning? Does it spur you on to trust him more? To believe that Jesus Christ suffered, died, rose from the dead, and all that power is now towards you who believe. This is good news, my friends. This text says, in this age and in the one to come. Gosh, I'm so tempted to only think about the one to come. The age when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, when God unites all things in himself. But Christ, it says, Jesus has already triumphed over the powers. So we live in this middle era where he is victorious, he is raised from the dead, all that power is towards us who believe, and yet we live on this side of his second coming, when he'll bring it in its fullness. These powers still exist and are active in the sons of disobedience, Paul tells us. He says they follow the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, if you're not in Jesus Christ... There's only two options. Your life is either found in him and his powers towards you who believe or this text says that you are being controlled by the prince of the power of the air and his spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those evil powers of darkness are still active through this prince of darkness who has a base of operation against Christians. Remember, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The devil has a base of operation against Christians, trying to find a way to deceive us, to drive a wedge between us. That's why forgiveness is so massively important in the Christian life. It's so massively important. Not forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us is giving an opportunity to the devil. 
to create a prison inside our own forgiveness, to make us bitter, to make us angry, to drive wedges between spouses, to drive wedges between parents and children, to drive wedges between church members and one another, between members and elders. Don't let the sun go down on your anger lest you give an opportunity to the devil. This present age that we live in is also held sway over by this present darkness. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.16 to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days themselves are actually evil, the apostle tells us. So that's where we live. We live in this house, halfway house, the already and not yet. His power is absolutely towards us who believe, and yet we live in this present darkness. But Jesus Christ is ruling now in this age and in the one to come. He is ruling in this age. He is far above every evil power. And in this intermediate time, Paul is calling upon us to appropriate this kind of power in our lives to engage in a deadly spiritual warfare on God's side against the devil and against his schemes. We appropriate his power by faith. And Paul is going to, excuse me, extrapolate that, how to take hold of it by faith when he tells us put on the full armor of God in verse 14. We just close by saying this. At the last supper, Jesus said to us, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It means we can't pray. It means we don't have any faith. It means we don't have any love for one another. We can do nothing apart from him. We are weak, my friends. And compound that fact. Jesus is saying that 2,000 years ago. Compound that fact that we live in the West. Compound that fact by that we live in the Pacific Northwest. That's just marked by rugged individualism. And we just don't think we're weak. But Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means that in him, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. We can be strengthened with the greatness, the strength of his might. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is ours. The strength to have grace, the strength to forgive, the strength to endure circumstance, the strength to persevere till the very end, the strength to be fathers who love our children and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lay hold of it by faith, my friends. It's freely yours because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us all that we need. We thank you for Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. Would you help us to stand firm, to be strengthened in the strength of his might. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.